Would you turn with me in the New Testament to 1 Timothy, please? 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're starting off a study into what are commonly called the pastoral epistles. I am not sure that I'm entirely in love with that uh, title that's been given them. Uh, Timothy is less of a pastor and more of a representative of Paul's. Uh, Paul would leave him behind in certain churches at certain times, telling them to encourage them and to keep things going, but he himself is nowhere called a pastor. So he's a representative. Now he fills the pastoral shoes. I'm sure that he is like any good godly man, doesn't mind sharing God's word with anybody at all. And he and Paul and Timothy go back a long, long way. His name means honor. Honor. He was a, a man of honor. And his journey with the Lord had, had taken him in, on a variety of different paths. Paul had first met Timothy on his first missionary trip, spanning 46 to 48 A.D., uh, as he went through South Central Asia Minor, today modern-day Turkey. And he met him in the town of Lystra. He joined Paul on his second missionary journey, straddling the years 49 to 52 A.D., four years later. Now, Timothy was most likely a very young man when he first met Paul. He may have actually been led to the Lord by Paul during his, his missionary journeys throughout the area in Ephesus and, and in his own hometown of Lystra. He might have been with him uh, on his second missionary trip as only a teenager, perhaps 17 years uh, of age, plus or minus. Now, the letter of 1 Timothy is dated about 64 A.D., so Paul is in his late 60s. Hmm. Timothy somewhere closing in on 30 years of age, but still could be rightfully called a young man, by his spiritual father figure. You know what this letter is to me? In fact, these two letters, including Titus, the third so-called pastoral epistle, these aren't pastoral epistles so much as Paul showing us what discipleship looks like. He was less concerned about what God's call on their life was than to encourage them to find out what God's call on their life was. And so these wind up being, they're not letters to general church members, they're letters to individuals, but I see Paul's heart of discipleship behind this. He just wanted to raise up people in the Lord. He didn't want to increase their knowledge base he wanted to increase their intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that we've lost sight of that today. Maybe especially in Calvary chapels that are a word-based church, and that's a wonderful thing. But I have no interest in making a smarter church if it is not more godly. Head knowledge puffs up. Love edifies. I'm not here to make you a smarter Christian, but a more godly one. That requires humility on your part. It necessitates you asking the Lord this morning for a teachable spirit. It means putting yourself in the text and saying, I'm Timothy, and God is my father figure that's speaking spiritual truth into my life. So wherever you find Timothy's name, in, feel free to insert your own. Where Paul's name is, you can insert the Lord Jesus Christ teaching you his spiritual progeny. I think what discipleship is is a long-term committed relationship that's born out of the love of Jesus Christ in your heart. You just love other people. And then every once in a while there's somebody the Lord will send you that you got a special place in your heart for. You've had that happen, haven't you? Over the, the many years that people have come and gone in the church, there's some people that you, they just touch your heart in a special way. And you get the sense that this is a God-ordained relationship. You don't understand all of it. You don't know what it means. You should not try to formalize it. Well, would you like to enter into a formalized discipling relationship? That is not biblical language. Do you understand that? That is not biblical language. How about relationship? Hey, how about we go out for a cup of coffee? How about we invest in each other's lives a little bit? Can I tell you about what Jesus has done for me? That's the heart of discipleship. You don't even have to use the word discipleship. Just do it. 
It's all centered around the work and person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So their history goes back at least 15 years. It started when Timothy may have been as young as 12, 13 years of age. But Paul saw something in this young man. His mother had planted the seeds of faith. She was a born-again Christian. His father was an unsaved Greek. So he grew up in a home that knew lots of discord and division. His mother had chosen Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Jesus said at one point in time, Think not that I've brought peace to the earth but a sword. Timothy saw that in his own household. The, the good part of a line being drawn in the sand is you need to quickly decide which side you will fall on. Jesus Christ, or will you go to the way of the world? Timothy's father was a Greek. He had gone the way of the world. And some of you may be able to identify that because you're married to unbelievers. You're married to pagans. And you think it is hell on earth. No, you're the brightest thing in their lives. That's why God put you together. A lot of people come to faith after they're married, whether the husband does or the wife does. But sometimes you can feel so alone and so isolated. Timothy knows what that feels like. He came from that kind of divided home. It was difficult. I'm sure dad may have been a, a typical Greek, which means a patriarchal figure that kind of was lord over the house. Maybe he drank too much. Maybe he tended towards verbal abuse. It wasn't uncommon in Greek households. Yet his mother was a soft and tender-hearted Christian, a woman after God's own heart, if you will. And while that dichotomy existed in his own house, he apparently, and possibly with the encouragement of Paul on when he first met Paul, decided, I'm going with Christ. I think that's the decision all of us need to make this morning. As we enter into this discipling relationship, going through these books, it's God talking to you and me. There is change that needs to take place. But choose you this day whom you will serve. There's a line in the sand. You can go the way of the world. It is, by the way, on its way to hell. It is opposed to God. It is opposed to God's righteousness. Or you can go the way of Jesus Christ. And many in this room have made that decision. There was a line drawn in the sand for us. We came to a point of decision at some point in time. I'm going to all in for Jesus or all in for the world. But I have to choose this day whom I will serve. I want with all of my heart to, for Paul to disciple us this morning. Pastoral epistles, well, maybe that's what the scholars call these three letters. I prefer to see them as Paul showing us what discipleship looks like when you care, when you invest yourself in the life of someone else, where it becomes about them instead of about you. I think that in this age of narcissism, it's all about us. It's all about me and my feelings and my wants, my desires. And these books pull us outside of that worldly mindset and say, no, it's about God. And because it's about God, it's about others. Will I do that? Will I look for those opportunities? Will I speak into other people's lives, encouragement and blessing? Will I tell them about Jesus? That is the world's greatest need. And some lessons are taught. That's true. We went to school and learned how that takes place. Other lessons are caught. It says that when the disciples were hauled before the Sanhedrin, after Jesus had risen from the dead and ascended back into heaven, it says they noted that they were unlearned fishermen, but they had been with Jesus. Some lessons are, are taught. Formal schooling is good for that. But some things you can only learn by personal experience. You catch that lesson. They hung around with Jesus. Can I tell you this? The more you hang around with Jesus, the more like him you become. Be in his word. Be in prayer. Be in fellowship. Because as you do that, you're becoming slowly but surely more like him. If you ignore those things, you will become more and more like the world 
It's trying to gobble up the light today. It's a dark place that we live in. I thank God for spiritual victories, uh, whether they be large or small. I praise God. But we've understood you can't legislate righteousness. We can pass all the laws in the world. In fact, Oliver Wendell Holmes, back in the 1930s, the Supreme Court Chief Justice had much to say about life in America and the necessity of laws. He said, in a nutshell, if I could paraphrase him, only a lawless people need laws. The more godly a nation, the less need for laws there is. That's from the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America in 1935. He had it right. We can't legislate righteousness, but we can see people's lives changed by Jesus Christ, and they, a godly people, then will make a godly nation. Laws are for lawbreakers. They're not for those that love the Lord. I want to catch those lessons. Jesus told his disciples, follow me. That's all Jesus is asking of you this morning. Follow him. Don't follow me. You don't have to follow Calvary Chapel Eastside. You don't have to be a part of Calvary Chapel. There's many, many good churches out there, and I praise God for every one of them. But you must follow Jesus. Otherwise, the world will tell you who to follow, what to follow, how to follow. The last chapter of the book of Acts ends up with the Apostle Paul under house arrest, awaiting trial before Caesar on charges of insurrection and treason against Rome made by the Jewish religious leaders. It, it appears that these adversaries of Paul's, they never showed up in Rome. He was there under house arrest for two entire years, allowing him to pen much of the New Testament that we hold in our hands this morning. But Paul was eventually released about the year 62 A.D. He wasn't executed till 68 A.D., so he's got a six-year window of opportunity. And early church fathers in tradition tells us he went on a fourth missionary trip, probably took Timothy with him. Traveling first to northern Greece, uh, he had wanted to go back to Philippi, which was in Macedonia, where he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus about 63 to 65 AD. And then from Macedonia, he commissioned Titus to continue the work that Paul began on the island of Crete, and he left Timothy in charge of the church at Ephesus. Well, you're my representative there, Timothy. And so he's got a whole host of problems. You can read the book of Ephesians to see some of the issues they were dealing with there. A persistent problem at the church at Ephesus was a heresy that downplayed the deity of Christ. It looked godly because it taught asceticism. I don't know if you know what that is. It is a harsh self-abasement kind of lifestyle. It's the guy that says, I'm only going to drink water and eat moldy bread and sleep on a bed of nails. That's called an ascetic lifestyle. And you go, that's a little harsh. Yeah, well, that's what they were preaching. Deny the body. No, you can't have any pleasure. You can't eat anything, any good food at all. You can, it's just minimalistic. You've got to deny the flesh. You've got to kill the flesh. So, and, and you mix that up with some Jewish legalism, and the people that were skinniest thought themselves the holiest. What's that got to do with anything? Because of their diet, they're closer to God. That didn't make any sense theologically at all. But, but they said, no, we're really good Jewish legalists because we deny the flesh. It's an austere self-denial, self-discipline, self-abasement, really. It's borderline self-abuse. But they taught that as the way to please God. You want to please God? You got to do the Buddhist thing. You got to deny yourself. You got to be hung up by hooks and ropes, and you got to pay the price for your sins, and you got to deny yourself on a thousand different levels. And that'll get you closer to God. Only Jesus Christ can get you closer to God. That's the lesson the Jews failed to comprehend. The law was given so that sin might increase. In other words, the law was given to convict us of sin. And if we thought we were keeping the Ten Commandments, Jesus showed up in Matthew 5 through 7 and said, if you've ever lusted after another person, you're guilty of adultery. If you've ever hated somebody else, you're guilty of murder. 
What Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount is convict all of mankind ever born, man, woman, and child. He convicted us of falling short of God's standard of perfection. I could be wrong. Any of you want to claim sinless perfection from the womb to the tomb? Can I see your hands? You arrogant person that needs to be prayed for. We all know innately we've fallen short. We've fallen short. We try to be good people, but we know we've fallen short. That's simply the law reminding us we need a Savior. Jesus Christ, that's why He came. If we could be saved by sleeping on a bed of nails, never eating a McDonald's Big Mac again, staying away from hot dogs and all that tastes yummy, if that gave us a way to God, then Jesus didn't have to come at all. But He came and He paid the price that our sins deserve. The wages of sin is death. Scripture tells us, no amount of your works, self-effort, or religious activity can put you in God's presence with His mark of, of approval upon you. Jesus Christ has already done the work. It is offered to you. Eternal life is a gift. Receive it. You didn't earn it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. But what you can do is receive it. Receive it. <laughs> My daughter's coming up on her first anniversary. First anniversary. I'm so happy for her. Going away on a little honeymoon. I get to spoil their children rotten for the next couple of days. We're going to eat all the hot dogs and candy we can, we can find in, the, in all the Walmart. Looking forward to it. My sweet wife decided, <clears throat> I want to give her a card. So let's, let's put our names inside of this touching sentimental card, and I want you to do bubble lettering on the outside and, and, and just give it to them. Now, we knew we didn't have to do that. That's why they call it a gift. But a gift has to be received, doesn't it? Eternal life is a gift. Jesus Christ offers it to us. He forces it upon no one, the price is simply to be smart enough to receive a gift that is freely offered you by the sovereign God who created the universe. He loves you. And it's not because you're such a lovable person. It's not because you deserve His love. He loves you because God is love. He is love. So let that sink in for just a second. This, these three books that we're going to study, first and second, Timothy and Titus, are going to remind us of how much God loves us. As Paul is equipping Timothy, God will be equipping you and I for the work of the ministry that yet lies ahead of each one of us. So my prayer is, Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church tonight, today, for the, between now and the time that He comes back for us in the sky. These are very personal letters. You're going to hear that in the tone of the letters. Uh, Timothy was so thought of by Paul that he names him the co-sender of six of his letters. Me and Timothy, we send you this letter. He said that to, in 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, and Philemon. And at the very end of Paul's life, he didn't ask for biologic family. He asked for Timothy. Huh. He didn't ask for his Jewish Pharisee buddies or ex-Sanhedrin members. He asks Timothy to join him in Rome. I'll tell you what, if you've got a best friend in Christ Jesus in this life, you are blessed more than most people. And if you've got one of these Paul-Timothy kind of relationships that you ever experienced, you are blessed beyond measure. If you've got more than one, Wow, these are rare relationships that require you to invest of yourself in the lives of others. It starts with your submission to God. That's how you receive the gift of eternal life and salvation and forgiveness of sins. Just say, Lord, I acknowledge you as the Lord that you are. I acknowledge you, Jesus, as the Son of God that you are. The one who came to earth, kept the law perfectly that I never could. 
Then you died on the cross, my substitute. Because the wages of sin is death, you took all of my sins upon yourself. But it didn't stop there. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. That is historical fact, regardless of what your feelings may tell you about it. It is historical fact Jesus rose from the dead. And as surely as he rose from the dead, I'm here to tell you, he's coming back. Are you ready? If you're still in your sins, you are not ready. Accept the gift of eternal life. Submit your life to God. Confess your sins to him. Repent of those sins. God, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I've sinned so much. I've failed so many people so many times and failed you most of all. I accept you, Lord Jesus, as the Son of God that you are and the Savior of the world. Save me from my sins. You pray that prayer and mean it in your heart of hearts, and you're saved, man. You're going to heaven. That's what Paul did with Timothy. That's where their journey together started. So if you want these kind of rich relationships as Paul had with Timothy, I think God is waiting to dump those in your lap once you're ready for it. You can't be a Paul until you've been discipled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus meeting Paul on the Damascus Road, knocking him off his high horse? Sometimes your pride stands in the way. Sometimes you thinking you're all that as a Christian stands in your way. Some of us could stand to pray a prayer of humility and say, Lord, baptize me afresh with love and joy and peace and patience. You've let your head knowledge get the best of you. But this is not about head knowledge. Nobody cares what you know. Everybody in the world needs to know you know him. Jesus Christ is God's answer to man's problems. I love the personal characteristics that we find in here. Timothy. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. Apostle literally means one sent out with a message. You might call them missionaries today, but apostello means one sent out with a message. Apa means apart from, stello means a message. He was sent out to tell the world about Jesus Christ. I was commissioned to be that apostle by the command of God, our Savior, and Jesus Christ, our hope. Not all of us are called to be apostles or pastors or teachers, but all of us are called to be sons and daughters of the living King. That's what he's called us to be. It's a place of highest privilege. You're no less called than Paul was. I remember his conversion in Acts chapter 9 where God says, uh, he, he shows up this bright light from heaven. Paul falls off his horse. He's stricken blind. And a voice from heaven says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He had been persecuting the church, by the way, not Jesus Christ. He'd been persecuting the church, but as far as God is concerned, you persecute me, that's like persecuting my son and vice versa. You persecute my children, you're in my face. You'll deal with me. The Romans called their emperor Savior God. That title is reserved for the one and only true living God, the one who commanded Paul to be his apostle, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. Fifteen years he has been a steady and steadfast son that has made his spiritual father proud. Mm. They are intimately acquainted with one another, and he blesses him with this greeting, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. You've received his grace. His mercy has forgiven all of your sins, Timothy, and because of that, you have peace, the peace of God inside that says, I'm right with God. If I'm right with God, I'm right with the world. I'm good. But it starts with the peace of God that transcends all understanding. Boy, if there is a shortage in the world today, it's peace. I despise watching all of these riots and stuff on TV. There's no love, no joy, no peace, no patience, because that's the fruit of God's Holy Spirit. It's not the fruit of the world. What I see on TV is a world spiraling out of control. 
and us being force-fed the lie that this is normal. This is normal. This is our First Amendment rights being practiced here. Really? Burning down cities and courthouses? Did I miss that part of the Constitution? That's your constitutional right? That's a lie from the pit of hell. But it's only endemic of a problem. The problem is they don't know the living God. They need Jesus Christ. They don't know Him. So they have no peace. They have no love. They have no joy. And they cuss like sailors. And they're out of control. And they rage. They need to know the Lord so desperately. Timothy, his name means honor, but it also appears that Timothy was maybe just a little bit timid. A different word in the Greek entirely unrelated to the name Timothy. But he comes across as being a little bit of a timid individual that is sometimes intimidated by the world or intimidated by older people than himself. He, he may be still shy of th- his 30th birthday. Grace and mercy and peace is Paul's prayer for this young man. You know the difference, don't you? Justice is getting what we deserve. I don't want that. Maybe for you. Yeah, that'd be fine. Getting what you deserve? Yeah. Justice for me, getting what I deserve, I don't want that. I want mercy instead. What's mercy? Mercy is not getting what you deserve. You know what grace is? Getting what you never deserved. God's riches at Christ's expense. Paul says, and as he starts there in verse 3, this warning against false teachers that that Timothy is going to encounter in Ephesus. Paul had told them, the Ephesian elders previously, there's going to be wolves that are going to be raised up right here from your own congregation. Satan knows if you can't beat them, join them. If you can't tear up a church from the outside, then infiltrate it and tear it up from the inside through division and arguing and strife. So Paul is going to talk uh, in these next 11 verses here. Uh, He's going to say there are 10 things that characterize false teachers. And I would like you to write these down if you're a note taker this morning because we see the same 10 qualities in false teachers today. They want you to believe their heresies by feeding you enough truth to get you to swallow the lie when it eventually comes along. Here's what Paul says. First of all, false teachers are characterized by teaching false doctrines. Have you ever heard anything on TV or radio as a Christian and you think to yourself, whoa, 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 that's not right. That's called the spirit of discernment. That's the Holy Spirit working in on and through you. But their false teachers teach false doctrines. It's not biblical, which means you have to know what the standard is. If you know the Bible and the truth that it teaches, then you can easily identify false teaching when it comes along. Secondly, they were teaching Jewish myths. Now, the Jews were real fond of adding to the Word of God. Oh, they had the Talmud, they had the law, they had the Torah. But then they started amplifying that They had the Mishnah, they had the Gemara, these other books and encyclopedic sets telling you where the boundaries were at. And it was rabbinic interpretations. And they thought after a while that their rabbis' opinions were just as weighty as Scripture. I've had people bring that up to me before. Well, Pastor Jim, have you ever, ever read the Tanakh? Yes. Have you ever read the Mishnah or Gemara? Yeah, but it's not Scripture. It's not Scripture. I don't really care what they say. I don't care what their opinions are. But they have such a, uh, an emphasis on these rabbinic traditions that just don't jive with Scripture. Now, now, some of you are thinking, well, I'm not Jewish. I have no idea what you're talking about. Are you Catholic? Or come out of a Catholic background and bring some traditions from that background that may not have anything to do with the Lord? Have you ever dabbled in Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses and them teach you false doctrines that eventually your Christian conscience said, bing, that's not right, and you broke with them? There was a third characteristic that these false teachers had. They wanted to be known as great Old Testament scholars. 
They wanted people to look up to him. Oh, you know so much. Oh, you're such a smart guy. Oh, you're such a learned lady in, in the scriptures. Ooh, ah. And they, they were looking for people to puff up their pride. Don't you hate prideful Christians? They come off as spiritually smug. They always leave you with a sense that they are your superior spiritually. Ah, they can quote scriptures uh, and, and they get this look on their face and you tilt back their head and you're supposed to go, ooh, ah. They were concerned with appearances instead of any heart that may have been right or wrong with the Lord. Third, fourthly, they built up stories on all sorts of weird genealogies. Oh, I had a dream. I had a vision. Oh, you know, some, someday I, I was in the Old Testament. God was really speaking to me about some of these obscure genealogies. In fact, if you go back to the book of Numbers and you look at every seventh letter in the Hebrew alphabet, it spells Jesus. The, well, you're taking every seventh, what are you doing? But they build up all these, these tremendous uh, arguments based on some really weird stuff. Secondly, or fifthly, they were known, these false teachers were, for their vanity and their conceit. Answerable to no one, I'm above that. Who are you to question me? People that carry titles today that are self-imposed. You need to call me bishop. You need to call me the right honorable reverend James Albert Etheridge Esquire III and then put some initials after that that you have no idea what they mean. That's supposed to somehow impress you. And these guys were all caught up in conceit. I got to tell you, when people like send me books in the mail and stuff like that. I just hate it when they f need to load up all their accolades. Oh, so-and-so read my book, and he thought it was great. Oh, this great author read my book, and they think it's great. I, it appeals to their pride and their vanity. Conceited people, I, I just don't have much time for. Sixthly, write this down, false teachers are fond of arguing. All they want to do is argue. You've had them coming in and out of your church experiences over the years. Oh, have you heard about this great teacher? Where do you stand? Uh, well, do you like John MacArthur or Joel Osteen or this rabbi or that great teacher? Where do you stand on these things? We should, we should argue about Calvinism. We should argue about, can you lose your salvation? We should argue about whether the gifts of the Holy Spirit are for today or not. Let's argue about that. You can kill a church with that stupid mindset. Argue about it? How about we search the Scriptures and pray about it? How about, does that make a little more sense? Rather than to divide a church and get ugly and rancorous, but false teachers always want to argue. Just hold up your hand and say, speak to the hand. I don't want to argue. I know what I believe. I know in whom I believe. I know why I believe that. But you're not going to convince anybody by argument. You will never get anybody into the kingdom of heaven by argument. You're going to meet plenty of pagans in your life about that. Well, what about the dinosaurs? Well, what about creation? What about Big Bang? And all of a sudden, you're supposed to have a PhD in thermodynamics and archaeology? I have an older brother who is a devout atheist, and one time wanted to engage me, this is many, many, many years ago, and he had studied the Bible just so he could bury Christians in argument. You got to really hate God to do that. So he said, well, you know, Jim, what about, what about Big Bang? What about the dinosaurs? And how how'd all those animals get on the ark and stuff like that? And God just opened my, up my eyes, and he said, that's not what this is about. And I said, Dearest brother, if I could answer every single question you have to your satisfaction, would you bow the knee and accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior today? And he said, no. And I said, then all you want to do is argue. You have no interest in what's true or false. You have no interest in whether God is real or not. You just want to argue. Well, Paul will tell Timothy, you have nothing to do with vain and foolish arguments. You can't argue anybody into the kingdom of God. You can, however, love people into the kingdom of God. 
You can pray for them. You can encourage them. You can share your personal testimony with them as to how you got saved. Don't be argumentative. Seventhly, the false teachers uh, were known for their meaningless talk. Uh, it's described by Paul in, in verse 6 as foolish talk. Some people just want to impress you with their vocabulary. Well, you know, the teleological argument for the faith goes like this. You're going, what? Well, the cosmological argument, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, puffed up peacocks is what they are. Just let them preen their feathers and walk away. Eighthly, <laughs> they don't know what they're talking about. That's real common. I, I have had no shortage of, of conflicts with Calvinists over the years. We're not a Calvinistic church. We're not opposed to Calvinism. We feel that it represents half the truth, but Arminianism represents the other half of biblical truth, and that's man's responsibility. So it would only be a fool to pit two sides of the coin against each other. Well, which is the real quarter, the side with the Washington's head on it or the other side? That's a foolish argument. It's two sides of what? The same coin. So the sovereignty of God is one side of that coin. The responsibility of man is the other. But I have had no shortage of Calvinists come up to me over the years. Way back in Bible college when we were teaching at Calvary Chapel Bible College, uh, some kids came over to the house one day and, and just wanted to argue Calvinism. Some hyper-Calvinist had taken over a charge of the, of the uh, Bible college there and was undermining the teachings of Calvary chapels and teaching uh, hyper-Calvinistic heresy. So these kids came over to my house and they, they, they wanted to argue Calvinism. And I said, well, can I just stop you for just a second? I said, um, how, how many semesters of theology have you had at the Bible college so far? Well, I've had one semester. Actually, I'm mostly through that first semester. So I said, so you've had less than one semester of any theological education whatsoever on a formal level. Good. I said, now you're arguing the views of Calvinism, uh, the five points of Calvin's TULIP, as they're called, T-U-L-I-P, stands for the five basic points that historic Calvinism has stood on. I said, have you ever read the writings of John Calvin, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, a three-volume set, and I mean each volume's like this. Nope, never read it. And I said, so, let me get this straight. You're talking about something you know nothing about. Huh? If you haven't read John Calvin, how can you argue Calvinism? In fact, I have not yet, in 50 years of being a Christian, I have never met a Calvinist who actually read the writings of John Calvin. But they sure want to argue. Talk to the hand. Talk to the hand. Have nothing to do with vain and foolish arguments. In your spirit, you might be thinking, you're an idiot. And you would be right. They are. They are without knowledge, true in the original sense of language, but they don't mind arguing about it. Ninthly, false teachers are known for their teaching that an ascetic lifestyle is the way to godliness. Well, look at me, Pastor Jim. I'm skinny and you're fat, so I must be more godly than you. I only eat the Jewish Hebrew diet. Good for you. I like ham and hot dogs. I'm not Jewish. I'm Gentile through and through. You want to eat moldy bread and water? God bless you. Fine. Go for it. But they teach that somehow there is a moral superiority because I don't drink. I don't dance. I don't do this. They're always known for a long list of I don't do this, I don't do this. In other words, I'm a goody two-shoes and you're a sinner. And so they come across with as a, some sort of spiritual elitism that makes you sick, doesn't it? You just hate that. Tenthly, false teachers always use their positions to enrich themselves. What false teachers do is fleece the flock. Look at any pastor out there that you may be enamored with. What's their net worth? 
some of the greatest false teachers that are out there today brag on being some of the wealthiest evangelists on planet earth. Well, that's the characteristic of false teachers. They enrich themselves. They teach health, wealth, and prosperity, for instance, but they're the only ones that seem to be millionaires. They talk about you sowing seed faith money into their ministry, but if everybody is supposed to be prosperous, how come they're not sending you checks? Why is it always a one-way street? They teach health, wealth, and prosperity, but I find that people have been dying since Adam, and no amount of faith or health, wealth, and prosperity teaching will stop that. Can I tell you this? Healthy people don't die. And yet they teach this is the will of God. It's God's will that you never get sick. It's a life from the pit of hell. Paul was sick. Epaphroditus almost died for the sake of the gospel. Timothy has an upset stomach that Paul says, take a little wine for your stomach's sake. Paul couldn't even heal himself of his own eye disease. Three times it says in 2 Corinthians 12, he asked the Lord, take away this thorn in my flesh. And God said, no. Now, all of us hate Thorns in the flesh, whether it's COVID-19 or a more chronic condition that you just can't shake, all of us hate those kinds of things. But sometimes they represent the perfect will of God for you. Embrace it. Don't fight against it. Embrace it. Don't complain. Don't whine, murmur, or grumble. Three times Paul asked the Lord to take it away, and God told him, my grace is sufficient. How many of you believe that God's grace is sufficient? You'll be tested on that. His grace is sufficient, though. Can I tell you, someday you're going to find out that God is all you need. You'll never find out that God is all you need until you hit that place in your life where God is all you got. When you got nothing, you got no friends, you're in a Job-like situation. A guy who had it so hard in the Old Testament, he lost everything. But he had God. The whole, whole issue in that whole book of Job is not why do the righteous worship, but do you trust God in the midst of trial and famine and deprivation and hardship and physical infirmity? Nobody likes this stuff, but I find that regardless of how much I complain, it doesn't go away. Have you noticed? I hate COVID. I want you to take it away from me, Lord. Two weeks later, he does. Three weeks later, he does. You may be left with some residual after effects, and maybe that's God saying, my grace is still sufficient. It's okay. Go with it. Go with it. He says in verse 3 and then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, northern Greece, you stay there in Ephesus in Asia Minor, today modern-day Turkey, so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines. It's not a loving thing to tolerate a false teacher in our church. Somebody trying to undermine the Word of God and the person of Jesus Christ. It is not godly to have them in our home fellowships. Now our prayer is that they might get saved, but they are trying to infiltrate and conquer and divide. You command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. What should they devote themselves to? God. You'll remember in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42, these 3,000 new converts that had responded to Peter's first unrehearsed sermon ever, a three-minute sermon, 3,000 people get saved. It says in Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves, strong term, to first of all the apostles' teaching, that's the New Testament, and to the fellowship. The fellowship is when we gather together for church. To the breaking of bread, that's communion. We need to never forget what Jesus has done for us. And fourthly, they devoted themselves to prayer. These are like four legs on a stool. Satan knows if he can just chop out any one of those legs, the stool will fall. Some of you say, well, I read my Bible every day, but I don't pray. Satan's got his saw out there going, <laughs> trying to chop that leg out from underneath you. You're going to fall. 
Yeah, but I pray all the time, but I, I just don't go to church much. Satan, <laughs> he's got the saw out there. You're going to fall. Understand these four principles made early Christians strong in the first century. They still make for strong Christians today. Stronger when we do those four things, weaker when we don't. It says that all the believers were together. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common, in common fellowship, koinonia. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day, verse 46 of Acts 2 says, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That's the only place big enough to hold 3,000 people in the first century in Jerusalem. So they had to meet. That's their church, large church gathering. Now, there's a movement amongst Christians today that says, well, I'm not much into formal church. Then you're not much into the Bible. You're not much into scriptural example. Whatever your excuses may be, can we be man or woman enough to say it is an unbiblical excuse that does not follow scriptural example? Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Catch this. They had big church Sunday morning, and then they also had home fellowships going on throughout the week. It's not small group versus big group. It's both and. Both are necessary. There's more intimacy in a small home fellowship than we can, than we can have in a larger gathering. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, verse 47 says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, this is the earliest and best self-portrait of the church that there is. The church was at its purest. It was at its strongest. It was in the face of persecution that was purifying the church. I think we should strive to be that kind of church, regardless of what the current trends are or what the hippest and coolest church is doing in town or in society, for that matter. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders that after his departure, false teachers would arise in Acts chapter 20. In verse 28, Paul said, Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, not dictators. Love these sheep. Take care of them. Feed my sheep, Jesus told Peter. I know that after I leave, Paul says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, within your own church, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. False teachers, verse 4 here in 1 Timothy 1, were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies to argue about. Uh, it, it describes the Gnostic emphasis on eons and genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Interesting to me uh, that Mormons today place so much emphasis on genealogies. In fact, Ancestry.com is a Mormon website that enriches the Mormon church. Understand that. Helps you to chase down your genealogies. But understand that's their obsession. It's not Jesus Christ. It's not the Word of God or they wouldn't be adhering so strongly to the Book of Mormon. Understand that's a cultic undertaking. Controversies still abound today, whether it's Calvinism, Arminianism, Catholic versus Protestant, divisive denominationalism, male versus female. In fact, society today can't even tell you what that is. The latest Supreme Court nominee, when asked the question, what is a woman? She said, I don't know. You don't know what a woman is? Go to your family doc, get a blood draw, let's do a little DNA on you. We can tell you. You may be real confused. Can I just tell you this in a nutshell? All of society today is really confused. Ten years ago, the movement was the lesbian and gay movement, L and G. And now it's L and G and B and T and Q and plus and one and two. And I don't know. Where does it stop? Where are the genders? Where's the personal plural pronoun? 
pronouns? Are you kidding me? What are your preferred pronouns? Call me Jim. Good grief. How can we complicate this so utterly foolishly? Putin is out there threatening to nuke nations, and we're talking about gender pronouns? Satan must be laughing all the way to hell. We only got this screwed up as a nation when we left God. Can I tell you, God is the answer to this nation's ills. It's not legislating righteousness. It's not the abolition of guns. I don't care where you stand on any of those issues. This nation has left God, and we have reaped the whirlwind because of it. We will not be a moral nation until we get moral men and women back in positions of significant office in this land. That's what America needs, God. Say, Pastor Jim, you're sure being political. This isn't political. This is God. God's not political. He just wants you saved and you in submission to him and his word. It's really simple. I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican or male or female, old or young. Those things are irrelevant. Don't let the social mores of what this sinful fallen world tells you is really important. Don't fall for that. It's false teaching on a global scale. You stick with God. He talks about men. He talks about women. Fascinating, he doesn't talk about anything in between. Hello? God created men. He created women. Well, what about LBTQ, XYZ, plus and minus? And <sighs> We've gotten away from God. Can I tell you, Scripture is, is very clear in a world that is very confused. We can't look to the world for our answers. We can only look to Jesus Christ. He's the one who puts mankind right with a holy and perfect God who created everything there is. You say, well, I don't believe in creation, Pastor Jim. I'm a more progressive Christian. I believe in Big Bang. Okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, let me ask you a question. Who made the stuff that went bang? Who decided when it was going to go bang? Who set the limits as to how far and how fast it would go bang? In other words, your Big Bang theory explains what? Absolutely nothing. You're still left with somebody who made the stuff, who decided when it was going to go bang. His name is God. Hello, this is your wake-up call. But the world today basks in ignorance and calls it enlightenment. We must know better than that. Paul says, verse 5, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere Faith, it's all about love. Love is the goal. It's not knowledge. As we approach our Bible studies, remember that the goal is love. The goal is God. It's not knowledge. I'm not here to make you a smarter Christian. I'm here to make you a better Christian. And God can do that if you open up your heart to Him. Love promotes unity. Love, Paul says here in verse 5, is a byproduct of three things, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Ah. Where does a good conscience come from? Right conduct. A clean lifestyle. Cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Consensus asks the question, is it popular? Conscience asks only one question, is it right? Do what's right. And everything else will turn out just fine. We know what love is. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us in verses 4 through 8, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Remember that the next spat you have with your spouse Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, 
always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That's why it's all about love. Verse 8 as we close out this morning's study. Uh, I need to back up briefly. I didn't cover verse 6. Some have wandered away from these things, these essentials of our faith, and turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. James 3 put it this way, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Judge more strictly. To whom much has been given, much is required. You know the Word of God. God wants you to do the Word of God. Knowing it, the Pharisees knew it. They just didn't do it. They crucified the Son of God in their arrogance and in their lack of humility. Verse 7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they don't know what they're talking about. The Old Testament Scriptures predicted the coming of God's Messiah, and yet they missed Him when He showed up in their arrogance. They thought they knew what they were talking about, but they didn't. Hmm. Verse 8, we know that the law is good if, only if, if, if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and the sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Verse 8 begs the question, what is the proper use of the law? To convict us of sin. You don't earn salvation by trying your best to keep the law. You've missed the, law, the use of the law completely. You, we don't earn God's approval by keeping the law. The law is a mirror that shows us our true spiritual condition. But that mirror is a, unable to do anything about our spiritual condition. It shows me that I've fallen short of God's standards, but I already knew that. The law condemns me as a sinner, but does not have the power to make me a saint. That's the purpose of the law, to break me, to leave me with the feeling that I've fallen short, and I have. We have. I don't say that to denigrate anybody in this room. Don't misunderstand me. I, I love you to death, and God loves you only a billion times more. But we have all fallen short, the glory of God. Amen? That's why you need Jesus. You accept Him as the Lord who paid the price for your sins. You repent of your sins and turn your back on them because the conviction of the Lord is already upon you. Let it go. Ask Him to save you, and He will. Turn your back on those sins. He will save you. Turn your back on God, and you pay for your own sins. And the wages of sin is, ask any fentanyl user, the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what happens to a nation that's alienated itself from the God who established that nation. All of our laws were put together originally by men and women that came to these shores that drafted the Constitution of the United States of America under the auspices of God's Holy Spirit and every single founding document of this country references God Almighty as the creator of the heavens and the earth and the creator of this nation. And yet we have as a nation, not you particularly, but as a nation, we have turned our back on God. Deuteronomy 28 tells us what happens to the nation that has turned its back on God. And it includes everything we see in society today. Violence, rage, drought, economic uncertainty, military instability. The list goes on and on. The law was a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, Galatians 3.20 for tells us that we might be justified by faith. That's how God justifies us. It's just as if I had not sinned when I accept Jesus Christ. God imputes to me the righteousness of His own Son. 
Romans 7.12 says, so then the law is holy, the command is holy, righteous and good. The problem is I can't keep the law. That's why I need Jesus. He's the only one that can cleanse me of my sinful fallen conscience. Let me share with you a quote. Law reflects, but in no sense determines the moral worth of any society. The values of a reasonably just society will reflect themselves in a reasonably just law. The better the society, the less law there will be. In heaven, there will be no law, and the lion will lie down with the lamb. The values of an unjust society will reflect themselves in unjust laws. The worse the society, the more law there will need to be. In hell, there will be nothing but law, and due process will be meticulously observed. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., the United States Supreme Court Justice who perished in 1935. We used to have godly men on the Supreme Court of the United States, and that is in jeopardy these last days as we talk about nonsense like court packing so we can skew the beliefs of, of the court or undermine our essential faith in God Almighty. We also, verse 11, look at this in closing, First Timothy 1, we also have been entrusted with the gospel. You'll remember the great commission Jesus gave his disciples. Go into the whole world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And know this, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. Get to work. Get to work is the paraphrase that I added past that, but the implication is, is clearly there. What Paul is, is reminding Timothy in this discipleship lesson of his is we came to faith because we received love and grace and mercy. Stay there. Stay there. Don't get caught up into arguing and division and strife and political issues. Don't get caught up in that stuff. Those that have experienced love and grace and mercy should be quick to dispense it as freely as they have received it. Does that make sense? Paul reminds us, I can't hear it enough. It's borne out to us purely in, in verse 5. It's all about love. It's all about love. He says, as he writes to the church at Corinth, you know, if, if I have all manner of spiritual gifts, if I can do all sorts of things, if I can heal people, if I can raise the dead, if I can do everything but don't have love, uh, what have I really got? If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, Paul says, but have not love, I'm a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move the mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Uh, what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. <laughs> now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Stand with me and close in prayer, would you? Lord, if we have a need this morning, it is a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we are here this morning acknowledging our need 
Lord Jesus, there's some in this room that don't know you, some in this room that have not repented of their sins, have not received you as the Lord of life that you are. And I pray that they would be open enough here and now with heads bowed and eyes closed to simply in their heart of hearts cry out to you, the living God, saying, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me my sins, Lord Jesus. I believe you're the Son of God who died on the cross to make the payment my sins deserved. I believe that you died and were buried and rose again on the third day, and you're coming back soon for your people. Save me, Lord Jesus. I am yours. Be my Lord and God and Savior. These things I pray, Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name. If you've prayed that prayer and met it and are going to stick with it, you're saved. God loves you so much. Loves you so much. For some of us, we've been Christians a long time, but what we have left is our first love. We're mean-spirited. We're critical in our, in our marriages. We, we spat and, and speckle at each other in our conversations. We don't act like husbands love wives or wives love husbands. We take each other for granted. We don't encourage. We don't build up. We don't support. Our love has grown cold. We just need to pray this prayer with heads bowed and eyes closed. Holy Spirit of my Father, baptize me afresh with love. More love, more power. That's what I need, Lord. I yield myself to you. Forgive me my sins. May my spouse forgive me the sins I've committed against him or her. Give us a second chance. Make our marriage better and stronger than it's ever been before. Father, every one of us in this room, single or married, young or old, needs a fresh baptism from you. We confess our sins. We repent of our sins. We ask that you forgive us, Father, as we offer ourselves once again as living sacrifices to you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. God is good.